Good morning, friends. Hope you're holding up <laughs> the pace of, of these very full days that we're enjoying together. I grew up in a large, mildly liberal pastoral friends meeting in Indianapolis. I went to Sunday school most Sundays and heard a lot of stories from the Bible. Nothing was really pressed upon me to believe. And I just sort of let the stories wash over me. And they were told mostly, I think, as stories of, uh, with good moral lessons or stories of heroic faith. But like I say, I mostly let it wash over me. Later, I was a student at Indiana University majoring in zoology when much to my surprise, I received a distinct calling to ministry. I was not active with any meeting or church at that time, as many in college are tend, tend to do. Uh, so it was all the more surprising uh, as ministry had never been a thought that had occurred to me. But I thought I would start taking some courses in religion. Indiana University had a large, very secular religion department. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was some wonderful teachers there. One of the first courses I took was an Old Testament survey course. And that term, I began to quickly realize uh, that the Bible is not a compendium of morality tales, after all. <laughs> the scales really fell from my eyes when I read the cycle of Jacob's stories in Genesis. Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, grandson of Abraham and Sarah, not exactly a hero or a moral exemplar. He's more of an anti-hero and a trickster. In fact, the whole Jacob's cycle is full of just about everyone playing some kind of trick on everyone else at one point or another. My love of the Bible began as I read the Jacob cycle in Genesis and began to realize that something more interesting than fairy tales or morality plays was going on there. Well, I would enjoy savoring the whole Jacob cycle with you this morning. But for our purposes today, I just want to bring out a few points that Jacob is a twin. As you may recall, his brother Esau was first out of Rebekah's womb with Jacob right behind holding on to his heel. Jacob grows up to be a man of the field, a hunter, and their father, Isaac, favors Esau because he puts meat on the table. Jacob is a more retiring personality, hanging around the tents with his mother, Rebekah, who favors him. And apparently, Jacob makes a really delicious lentil stew. So maybe there's a vegetarian subtext in this story. I don't know. 
Speaking of different interpretations, I, I've really enjoyed and learned from Peterson Toscano's uh, uh, reading of Jacob and his son Joseph as gender non-conforming characters in the Bible. I'll never see them the same again. The Genesis stories are so richly archetypal that, that many interpretations are possible and plausible when we read them out of our own experience. My concern this morning is to say a little bit about how early friends read Jacob out of their own experience and what we might learn from that. You may recall that Jacob twice tricks Esau, first out of the birthright and then out of the fa their father's blessing. First, when Esau is famished from hunting, he trades his birthright for a bowl of Jacob's wonderful lentil stew. And later, uh, their mother Rebecca schemes with Jacob to trick old blind Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of the firstborn Esau with the paternal blessing of inheritance. There's much more in the Jacob story, but for our purposes this morning, I'll, I'll stop there and we'll see how early friends worked with that story and how it plays into the theme of our time together this week, answering the call to radical faithfulness. Jacob shows up early in the early Quaker saga in an epistle by Sarah Jones. Now, Sarah Jones is not somebody we know much about. She may have become a Quaker, we don't know for sure. But she published a letter in 1650, an epistle to like-minded seekers, before the Quaker movement had really become a recognizable phenomenon. This letter contains spiritual counsel very similar to what George Fox was writing around that same time. Whether they even knew each other, I don't know. But before we look at an excerpt from her letter, we need to say something about the historic moment of 1650 and how the letter speaks to that moment. I mentioned earlier that the English Civil War, which went from 1643 to 48, was a war to decide the future of both religion and politics in England, uh, both of which had come to a critical point of, of uh, conflict in English society. And over the course of the war, both censorship of the press and uh, forced parish church attendance were suspended. So this is a period when all sorts of radical religious and political ideas begin to find their way into print and people no longer forced to their local parish church are starting all sorts of alternative churches and worship groups. And re religion and spirituality are, are radicalizing at lightning speed, as well as radical politics over the course of the Civil War. Charles I was finally defeated in 1648, and at the beginning of 1649 was tried by Parliament uh, and beheaded. So radical hopes 
really ran at fever pitch at that moment. Some looked for greater religious and social reforms, uh, like the levelers looking for uh, complete religious toleration and an expansion of the electoral franchise. Others looking for nothing less than the kingdom of heaven on earth. When you've known nothing but monarchy, you know, for centuries, when you behead the king, anything seems possible. But by 1650, many of these most radical spirits began to despair, seeing how Parliament and the army were beginning to exert a more conservative control over the future of the nation. Radicals felt cheated by the Parliament, particularly, that had made large promises to them to draw men into their army for the cause against Charles I. With something like the, the eclipse of radical hopes that many of us experienced at the end of the 1960s, around the time I was first discovering Jacob the trickster. As I said before, during the, during the Civil War, many of the most radical spirits had dropped out of all the church options and were in small worship groups or just on their own rather forlornly uh, mourning the state of their own spiritual condition and of the nation and waiting for new revelations and, uh, and uh, a church that they could really believe and, and belong to. But these were the people that were most disillusioned and falling into, into despair in 1650. Some were swept up in the outbreak of Ranterism in 1649 and 50. It's hard to give a short description to the Ranters that's really accurate. But they were not a move, movement, but a, more of a, of a spontaneous outburst of rebellion against the new Puritan establishment and its morality. Leading ranter writers were deeply religious people. Some of them had even been ministers in some of the alternative churches. But they write some pretty amazing things. Uh, light and darkness amount to the same thing. Good and evil, the same thing. One of them even suggested that if something seems sinful to you, just keep doing it until it seems right. <laughs> some wonderfully humorous and outrageous and brilliant and at times mystical things in the little handful of ranter writings from this period that we have. Sarah Jones' letter appears to be written to seekers who were mourning but not ranting. And she writes to them as people who had received some powerful revelations but were now feeling dry and empty, feeling lost under the new circumstances around that time, 1650. Here's an excerpt from her letter. We have larger letters today, larger print. I'll read along with the text on the screen. She writes, Dear Lambs, 
whom the Father hath visited with his eternal love, this is a message of the Lord unto you. Sink down into the eternal word and rest there. Sink down into the measure of life that you have received. Keep in that which is pure, which is the eternal word of the Lord. Look not at your own weakness, but look at him who is calling you in his eternal love, who will make the weak strong and will pull down the mighty from their seat. Here an echo of Mary's song at the time uh, Gabriel uh, announces her good news. Stand still and see the salvation of God, which is the light of his covenant. So cease thy mourning, thou weeping babe, that mourns in secret for manifestations from thy beloved, as thou hast had in days past. For I can, un I can testify unto thee by experience that he is bringing thee nearer him, if thou be willing and obedient to live at home with Jacob, which is daily to retire thy mind. Though the gadding, hunting Esau persecutes thee for it, thou shalt receive the blessing in which all happiness and felicity doth consist forevermore. For Esau went to hunt abroad when the blessing was to be received at home. Therefore, come down, come down to the word of his patience, which is nigh in your hearts. For, oh, the glorious day of the Lord hasteth to be revealed unto those who are kept faithful in his word. This letter was probably circulating among these networks of seekers that within the next two to four years would be coalescing into the Quaker movement. These women and men were learning how to sink down, to stand still and wait for the power that's, that's there to be found. They were no longer waiting for parliament or the army to, to make the actions that they had been hoping for in the, in the 1640s. They were now waiting upon the Lord where the power is. And that power would soon break forth in their experience, in their bodies, and in their witness in English society, a revolutionary witness. So Sarah Jones found the ancient story of Jacob and Esau resonating with her own experience. She and many other seekers had been like Esau, hunting abroad for the next great teacher, the next book of spiritual wisdom, or waiting on the next moves of the political drama all around them. And finally, it just wore them down to the point of despair. Like Esau, famished from hunting and ready to sell his birthright, But now they were becoming more like Jacob, retiring the mind from its hunting, sinking down to the source within, where true wisdom can be found. 
Eight years later, in 1658, the London Quaker, Sarah Blackborough, made the same point when she chided seekers who had still not made that crucial turn. She writes, Wisdom hath uttered forth her voice to you, but the eye and ear which is abroad, waiting upon the sound of words without you, is that which keeps you from your teacher within you. And this is the reason that in all your seekings you have found nothing. Such as your seeking is, such as your finding. Ouch. <laughs> Outward seeking, as we all learn from our own experience, leads in so many different directions. And it yields shards of wisdom, but not the wholeness that we're seeking. Such as your seeking is, such as your finding. I don't find Blackborough using the Jacob Esau typology here, but her point is much the same we heard from Sarah Jones in 1650. Francis Howgill shares his own seeking journey in the inheritance of Jacob Discovered, published in 1655. He tells how he bounced from church to church, from group to group, teacher to teacher, still not quite finding the power that he had hoped for. He became a leading preacher among the networks of seekers in Northern England. And he was 34 years old when he and about a thousand other seekers heard George Fox preach on Furbank Fell in June of 1652. Three years after that, in the inheritance of Jacob discovered, how Gill, too, counsels other seekers that had been much like himself. Therefore, all honest-hearted ones who traveled and are weary and have found no rest for your souls, I say unto you, lie not groveling in the earth, nor seek to know God in your fallen wisdom. For the well is deep, and if you know nothing but the old wisdom, you cannot come to one drop of the living water. Return home again. You are further off in running out and seeking in your earthly wisdom and comprehension than you were before. Halgill discovered the inheritance of Jacob by returning home and digging deeper to find the living water, his inward teacher. The imagery here alludes to a parcel of land that, that uh, Jacob bought when he returned uh, to Canaan and later gave as an inheritance to uh, his son Joseph. And it's at that place where there's a well, Jacob's well, that in the Gospel of John, Jesus has his conversation with the Samaritan woman and they talk about the living water as they sit by that well. 
Halgill went on to become one of the key leaders of the Quaker movement. He and Edward Burrow headed up the, the uh, campaign to bring Quakerism to London with spectacular success in the summer of 1654. As I've been emphasizing in these half hours, early friends reread the Bible in the light of their own experience. In part, they were guided by the Bible to that experience, but they also came to new understandings, new readings of those ancient texts out of a very 17th century experience. One of crisis and despair, a crisis and despair of themselves as well as their times and their society. These seekers turned Quakers discovered the inheritance of Jacob as a counterintuitive truth. Sinking down is counterintuitive when you already feel yourself sinking and you're grasping at straws for something to keep you afloat. Standing still is counterintuitive when you want to run away and find help somewhere else. Retiring the mind is counterintuitive when you're sure that just one more book or one more Google search will yield the all-important answers. So this counterintuitive truth is what we learn and have to continue learning in our journey as friends. And it's what we learn, you might say, from Jacob the trickster. It's something that inverts our first ideas of how to find wisdom. It's the same truth that John Bernier and his friends up in Cumberland were discovering as they stood still and learned how to stand still out of their own wills and find that power that lead, led them across the, the Red Sea. Actually, I can't resist suggesting that ranters were, played an important part in this story. Because many seekers passed through at least a brief ranter phase around 1650 on their way to becoming friends. One of them, no less than Isaac Pennington, who wrote some very interesting tracts in 1650. Uh, you can read more about number of these seekers and Quakers that I'm talking about this week in, in, a, in a book that I published in 2000, uh, Seekers Found. And there's a, a book, uh, there's a chapter in the book on, on Pennington and uh, some of his rancher-ish writings, uh, as well as more about uh, Sarah Jones and Sarah Blackborough. I think the thing is, as long as you keep your moral glasses fixed firmly on your nose, you'll only see your preconceived notions of good, and it gets in the way of seeing God, or the patterns, the divine patterns, as they unfold. And that's where we bump into the moral ambiguity of Jacob, the trickster, alongside the ranters. Only by suffering the eclipse of the ego, where all our moral commitments are invested, can we encounter the divine as a living reality. 
dolphin, a rather scary one at that. But once that encounter has taken place, a new moral integrity can begin to form at a deeper level of integration. That's part of the Jacob story as well, of course, because you'll remember that at some point, the trickster has to wrestle all night uh, with an angel before he encounters his brother Esau again after many years. And after that all-night struggle, Jacob will emerge the next morning as with a new name and a new identity as Israel, the father of a new people. But if he hadn't played the trickster first, he might still have been in the tents with his mother. Even George Fox had some good things to say about the ranters. He said they had some great revelations, but they fled the cross, as, as he put it. That is, they, they bolted from that place, that frightening place, where the real transformation can take place and the new moral integration can form. And that's what Fox and the other early Quaker leaders helped people do, to stand still in that place and not bolt. All through the 1650s, Puritans mistook Quakers to be ranters. You can hear, it's partly an epithet, but it's, it's, it's really an honest confusion because they're their, their witness was so confrontational. It was much like the wildness of the ranters. And yet, yet Quakers were saying that sin and evil are not the same thing. I mean, the good and evil are not the same thing. Uh, but that, that there is a perfection that's possible if one, if one stands still in the light and continues to be led and taught by the inward teacher. But those confrontational tactics of early friends were much like the ranters of 1650. The Lamb's War was a, a relentless, uh, nonviolent campaign in steeplehouses and marketplaces and in the streets, relentlessly jarring in a society that was already past its tolerance for crisis. It was an enormous release of energy from the middle and lower classes of English society. But not just those classes, but from the deeper registers within the men and women of those classes that empowered them. Well, we'll get to more about the Lamb's War and that nonviolent direct action campaign of the 1650s in the next couple days. If you want to read more about that, uh, my earlier book, uh, The Covenant Crucified, looks at uh, the early Quaker movement as, as a, uh, a nonviolent cultural revolution. Tomorrow, we'll hear how George Fox fought the Battle of Jericho in the market town of Kendall in 1652.